The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. It's great to, to have you here with us. If you've got your Bible, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, Lord willing, we will walk through chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning of 1 Timothy. Let me ask a question as you're turning there. What's the most effective, most powerful, most transformative thing that a church can do? Everybody's like, wait, is that rhetorical? Am I supposed to answer out loud? Pray. Pray. See, that's why I didn't want you to answer out loud, because you got right to the point. You stole my thunder, Eric. Leave it to a deacon to do that. All right. Uh, but he's right. Prayer. Prayer is, is the most effective thing. Sometimes we would think that preaching is the most powerful, most transformative, most effective thing, or service, or worship, or discipleship, or Bible study, or we'd name a bunch of things, but Ultimately, Paul's going to make a case today in chapter 2, 1 through 7, that prayer, that prayer is the most powerful, most transformative, most effective thing that any of us can do. And he's going to do so, before I read the text, I just want you to notice his first three words there in chapter 2 are, first of all. Now, if you read through the book, a lot of times we see first of all, and we expect that at some point we're going to see a second, Right? But this is not a first of all in a list. This is first of all as in of first priority, of first importance. Make this your number one. And I think one of the reasons why he says this is because he's living in a day, he's encouraging Timothy who's pastoring in a day where it wasn't like they could just be openly gathering together and and free of any fear of persecution whatsoever, and he knows that any church anywhere, then or even now, regardless of how little the resources they have, can pray. Even if a church is, is, is down to three or four people, they can pray. Prayer is the one thing that we can go to over and over again, and it is the most powerful, most effective thing that we can do. Without prayer, our preaching, our service, our evangelism, our discipleship, our Bible study, our worship is all powerless. Uh, just to give you an illustration, uh, imagine getting ready uh, to go on a trip and you're getting the car ready to go. And you pack the car and, and you set the navigation and you prepare the playlist. You got all your podcasts or your books or your music or whatever. You got them loaded and ready to go. You buckle your seat belts, you adjust your mirrors. You're ready to go, right? All of those things are ineffective if there is no gas in the car. And in a lot of ways, I don't want to make prayer seem cheap, but in a lot of ways, that's what we do if we refuse to pray. We get everything ready to go, but we don't, we don't have the fuel. We don't turn to the power source for it, for it to be effective. And so what I want to do is I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7 this morning, and I want to talk about today all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. So follow along with me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is 
one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. Today, I want to walk through these verses, and I want to show you just some things about prayer that we need that will take us hopefully further along than where we currently are. The first is all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people in verses 1 and 2. This provides for us the scope of our praying. How large should the circle be for our prayer? If you notice as I was reading through that, there is one word that is repeated over and over and over again. All. All is repeated over and over again. Five times throughout these verses. Six if you count the word every in verse two. It's a similar word. So we know that something is going on here that has to do with the word all. And so here we want to divide this. I think Paul has two issues in mind in verses 1 and 2. First is all kinds of prayer. We don't want to get caught up here because Paul's point is not to differentiate between these types of prayer. But I will simply explain. He calls for supplications. This would simply be making a request. Asking God to supply what's needed. Prayers. Prayers, that's the, in the original language, is the general word for prayer. Perhaps Paul here is alluding to consistency in praying. That he's simply using the, the normal word and he's saying this should be a normal activity part of your life. Intercessions. Well, intercessions to me, when you intercede for someone, it, it goes beyond asking God to supply. Intercede is more of a, I'm going to war for the person. I'm going to be on my face before the Lord, asking God for whatever in this person or this group for, for God to provide. And then thanksgivings calls for, it's very simply, uh, an attitude of, of gratitude. It's thankfulness. These are all kinds of prayer. We don't need to separate all these out and make a big deal over each one, but Paul does call for this scope of all types of prayer. His main point, though, is for all kinds of people. This is where I want you to focus in. When he says here that, that we should pray all the, he calls for prayer in all these ways to be made for all people, his focus is not primarily for self-centered prayer. Let's be honest. Most of us, if we, say, if we graded our prayer life, we would probably give ourselves a mediocre grade, maybe even borderline failing grade at prayer. If we had to grade our prayer on how much prayer is, is directed toward ourselves and then how much is directed toward other people, probably a lot of us would be failing, right? Because so much of our praying has to do with, Lord, I need this. I need you to show me this. Lord, would you give me this? And what he says here is, is not so much that our prayer should be asking for our own needs. There's nothing wrong with that. But he calls our attention to look beyond our own needs and to ask and to, 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 to call out to God on behalf of others for all people. Apparently, the false teaching that he has been speaking against in the first chapter when he's, when he's called Timothy to, to not allow these false teachers to, to spew this false doctrine any longer, perhaps one of the doctrines that they were, were, uh, were putting forward had to do with exclusivity. They were sort of creating this highbrow Christian society where it was, it was our four and no more. And they were becoming the, the frozen chosen, if you will. And they were kind of keeping everybody else out. 
And, and, and I think this is what he's addressing here. He's telling them, put away this false teaching, and one of the ways you do this is you get your eyes off of yourself and you put it out there on other people. And he says, pray for all people. John Stott once attended a, a certain church and, and he listened to the morning prayer. Uh, the, the pastor happened to be, uh, the main pastor, teaching pastor happened to be out that morning and, and one of the lay elders stood in the pulpit and, and prayed and he noticed that the, the prayer that morning was for the pastor to have a good vacation. Nothing wrong with that. And then he prayed for so-and-so in the congregation who was sick. Nothing wrong with that. But then he simply said, in Jesus' name, amen. And John Stott said that, he said, I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village God of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. And I wonder if we sometimes are guilty of the same thing. That in our praying, have we developed, have we created an, our own little village God that simply exists for us or simply exists for me? Is my prayer life larger than myself and does it move to the people around me? Is the prayer life of this church larger than who has an issue here or there within us among us, does it go beyond? Does it go out into the world? And that's what he's calling for. There is nothing wrong with praying for our needs, but he's saying that it must go beyond that. And then he gets specific. He says, I urge that all kinds of prayer be made for all kinds of people. And he gets real specific and he says, for kings, and again, all who are in high positions. And Paul gives here a particular focus to praying for those in government. Sometimes it's difficult to pray for those in government, isn't it? Based on their party affiliation, their moral leanings. I mean, we sit there, you know, I, I see a couple of nods, but we sit there kind of quietly. Sometimes it's hard to pray for those that are in, in, in politics or in, in high positions above us. Sometimes we don't agree with their policy. Sometimes we don't like their party. Sometimes we just don't like them, Right? And, and Paul is here saying that those things should not keep us from praying for whoever is there. That whether you like the person or not should not change the way that you pray for your political leaders. And here's how I know that. Think about this. When Paul says, when he writes to Timothy, who is then going to take this to the church at Ephesus, and he tells them to pray for kings and all who are in high positions... Who is he asking them in that historical context to pray for? Well, the king in their context would have been the emperor. The emperor would have been Nero. Nero is one of the most infamous haters and killers of Christians in human history. Nero was known for, I don't want to get too graphic, but, but torturing and killing Christians in some horrific ways and what Paul is here asking him to do is remember he's called them to offer prayer for those that are in high positions pray for the emperor pray for Nero and it's not just pray for him it's not just ask God to supply it's not just intercede go to war on behalf of him it's be thankful for him thankful for Nero, thankful for the one who's responsible for torturing and killing 
those who follow Christ? Am I really supposed to be thankful for this one? Well, in some way, the Bible here, Paul thinks, and, and he encourages Timothy to believe that somehow government under Nero is somehow better than no government at all. It's better than total anarchy. And while you and I might struggle with that, I might wrestle with that, this is what he's asking Timothy and the Ephesians to believe. And so whether it's Nero or whether it's Trump or whether it's Obama or whether it's Henry McMaster or, or go on down the list, we as believers are called to pray for those who are in high positions. You say, why? Why is this? Paul, why is this the, the focus here? Why of all things are you keying in on praying for the king and those in high positions? Well, Romans 13, Paul writes on this. In verses 1 and verse 4, Paul said, There is no governing authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And he is, whoever that ruler is, she, he, she, is God's servant for good. You and I don't know what God is doing through any of the rulers that exist at any point in, in human history. There have been some, some horrific leaders. The Bible, though, tells us that the heart of a king is turned in God's hand like the waters. That he uses even evil kings to bring about his will. And that you and I, no matter who's in, in the White House or who's on this or that, that you and I should be people of prayer. That I should not somehow, if, if I lean more Republican, and, and, and don't, this, is, this is the rhetorical part, don't speak out here because I'm getting into politics, and so I know I'm going to get you mad. But if I lean more toward Republican, I should not now be more willing to pray for the president than I was when the president was a Democrat. If I lean more Democrat, I should not now be less willing to pray for the president because he is a Republican. It should not matter to us who is in the office because God's Word tells us that there is no leader apart from the ones that God appoints. And so we pray. We pray for them. From the least significant among us, the most unlike us, to the most prestigious and powerful, Paul's point here in verses 1 and 2, is that we should pray for all. That we should get our eyes off of ourselves and pray for all. For those that would walk in this place who you think there's no way they're ever coming to Christ, we should pray for them. To the person who has no church background, no upbringing at all, we pray for them. Not because we are above them, but because we have been found by God. And we want desperately for them to be found by God. This is not a, a prayer of, of, of superiority. It is a prayer of concern that the gospel might go forward. And I'll show it to you here. The second, not only our scope, but in, in verse 2, we also see the goal of our praying. The goal of our praying is, is His kingdom, not ours. It's His kingdom, not ours. Verse 2 says, that the second half, we pray this way, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, there are lots of people who have developed their theology off the first half of this verse. They stop at, we pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And that's where they end. And they think, that means that God wants me to pray so that I can have the good life. So that I can have a life that's free of any trouble. That I can have everything I want. And this is where prosperity preachers 
key in and take this verse and only take half of it and use it where they want. But we cannot develop our theology on half verses. We must develop our theology off of the whole of Scripture. Paul doesn't have in mind here your best life now. He goes on to say that not only does he want us to lead peaceful and quiet lives, but he wants us to live godly and dignified in every way. Now, why in the world would, would, would Paul say that he wants us to live godly and dignified? Uh, there's, to me, there's only a couple of reasons why you would want to live godly and dignified. Uh, well, maybe two or three. I, I think one is you would want to live this way so that you reflect a heart that is grateful for salvation and you want to be pleasing to the Lord in the way that you live. A second way is that you want to live godly and dignified, not to lord it over others, but so others might see that you actually believe what you say you believe, that it proves your faith. And a third reason, I think, would be that you want to live godly and dignified in order to point others to this God and His gospel. And this is why. This is, this is the, the entire reason why He's saying to pray. It is not so that you and I might have the good life, it is so that the gospel might go forward. The reason that Paul ties praying for peaceful, quiet circumstances to praying for kings and those in high positions is because the gospel advances best when Christians are free to share it. Now, I realize that throughout Christian history, the gospel has advanced under persecution. When persecution happened, Christians were scattered, and where they were scattered, the gospel went with them. But we don't, we don't want to pray for persecution. We want to pray for our leaders, for those that are in government positions above us, that they might come to know the Lord, that, they, that they, their hearts might be turned toward Him, that, that, that conditions might be favorable towards Christianity, that we might be able to share the gospel openly. You and I have a privilege that there are people all over the world that they don't have. You and I can walk out this door today, go into any restaurant, go into any public place, and we can... We can Tell somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people today that can't do that. Do we want that to end? No, we don't want that to end. We pray for our, uh, the, our political landscape so that it is favorable for the gospel. This is not written just to American Christians. There are people in those places where it is difficult who are being persecuted, who have no freedom, and this is just as true for them. They are called to pray for their leaders that persecute them so that their leaders' hearts might be turned favorable to the gospel so that wherever they are, they might be more free to share the gospel. This is all about mission. Verses 1-7 through seven is not about prayer that builds your kingdom. It's about prayer that builds God's kingdom. I'll point you back to the first four opening words of our passage in verse 1. I talked about first of all, but then that fourth word is then. Then is the same thing as therefore. And anytime you come across a then or a therefore, it calls you to look backwards. And you think, well, what is he referring to? First of all, then I call for prayer. Well, why? What, what is he basing this on? So he looks backwards to what he's previously said. And in verse 15 of chapter 1... Paul had said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In verse 16, Paul said, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to those who were to believe. And in verse 18 of, of verse, chapter 1, Paul wrote, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. And so there's this 
there's this missional gospel thread that Paul is weaving to Timothy and, and, and by proxy to the Ephesians and then by proxy to us today. That the gospel came to Paul. Paul has passed it on to Timothy. Timothy has passed it on to, to the Ephesians. And all the way through history, Christians have passed this on, this idea of mission. And it has come to us today and that we are to be people that pray not to build our kingdom, to make us comfortable, to give us the good life, but that we might pray that God would leverage our lives so that the gospel might go forward. And so I would simply ask you the questions this morning to bring this home. Are we praying for all people? Are we praying for our political leaders in the political landscape? Are we praying rooted in the fact that the gospel needs to go forward? It's really easy in today's culture of bad news to just gripe and complain. You know what griping and complaining is? It's, it's, it's no more significant than putting your seatbelt on or adjusting the mirror in the car. The one thing of power that, that you and I have to do is to pray. And then beyond that, to share the gospel. And that would call us to it. So then, the last point that I will share with you this morning, and there's three in this, but it simply comes out of a question. It's the rest of the passage this morning. Why should we pray this way? Why do we pray this way? I mean, if, if God wants to save the world, then why didn't he just save the world? Well, why do we pray this way? Well, I want to show you this. Number one is it pleases God. That's what verse 3 says. It's very simple. This, is not, this didn't take me a whole lot of time to figure this out in my study this week. I didn't have to, have to parse verbs and look up original language and all this. It's very clear. Verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And honestly, it should be enough that God says He takes delight in our prayer to cause us to want to pray. If today, I've used this illustration before, but if, if today... Your favorite hero out there, be it a sports figure or some celebrity, some sort, if they were today to get word to you to say, I want you to come, come to see me, I want to invite you to come sit down with me, we're going to have a meal together and we're just going to talk, you would break your back. You would cancel everything on your schedule to make sure it happened. And the God of the universe says, anytime, all day, whenever, come sit down with me. This is an amazing promise. It, it pleases God. Revelation 5, verse 8, uh, reveals that God treasures the prayers of the saints in golden bowls. There's only so many things you do with golden bowls. Unless you're Luke Mallory. You eat cereal out of a golden bowl. But you put, you put things of treasure in golden bowls. And God says that the prayers of His people are so precious to him that he stores them up. And so it pleases God. So I call you to pray. Secondly, I told you there were three. There's actually four. Secondly, it brings our desires in line with God's. When we pray this way, it brings our desires in line with God's. We don't pray in such a way that we say, God, I want you to do what I want you to do. When we pray for all people with all kinds of prayer, instead of us saying, God, I demand my way, it brings our hearts in lines with God's. Verse 4 
tells us this. It, it says, uh, who, God, it pleases him, and it says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if, if you're astute, you come to this verse and you say, but wait a minute, Pastor, there have been times where you've, you've pointed out that the Bible teaches things like predestination and election, and it does. So then how, Pastor, can it say here in verse 4 that, that God wants all people he desires all people to be saved. How, how do those two things square? Well, I would tell you that God's desire is not the same thing as his will. That we, we sometimes mix those things up. Uh, give you a for instance, John 3:16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the world. He loves the world. It means he loves you. But we know that not everyone will be saved. We know that there will be those who reject Christ and go out of this world into eternity into the wrath of God. God's desire is not the same thing as his will. When it says here that God's desire is that all would, would be saved, what it means for us is that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And nor should we. That we should not be smug and satisfied with people that are lost and, and have no inkling to, to move toward God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should not be satisfied in that. Can we say that indifference is that much different from pleasure? Here's what I mean. We, we derive pleasure. We gain our pleasure from what we desire. Right? If we don't desire for all to come to faith, aren't we in some way deriving pleasure from our satisfaction with their spiritual condition as it is? How can we, who have received so much in the gospel, who have been forgiven greatest debt, like Paul, chief of sinners, how can we be smug and satisfied to know that there are people who do not know, who have not heard, who have not had the opportunity to hear the gospel? When we pray in this way, we are praying in such a way that says, God, I don't care about the lost like I should. God, would you give me a burden for them? Bring my heart in line with yours because I know yours is right. Mine's wrong. Mine needs to change. God, change my heart. And God will give us a heart for the lost. Number three, why do we pray this way? Because it demonstrates an exclusive faith. It demonstrates an exclusive faith. Verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, I pointed out to you that there are the, the word all is repeated five times, six if you count every. But then we have these two uses of one. See the contrast? All, 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 all. There's one God. And there's one mediator. And what these false teachers were doing is they were saying, oh, the gospel is only for, for us. It's only for those who are like us. And, and what Paul is doing here is, is he's not promoting this, this superiority of religion. The fact that there is one God and only one way to Him is not a reason for this religious elitism. It cannot mean that. When Paul here points out there is one God, one mediator, 
who gave him his life as a ransom for all, what he's pointing to is that an exclusive faith, meaning there is no other way to God but through Christ Jesus, an exclusive faith demands an inclusive mission. It demands that we, if, if there is no other way, and God wants all to be saved, that we too should take the exclusive message of Jesus Christ to the masses. That we should not be, be smug and satisfied in our four and no more, but we should indeed pray in such a way that it demonstrates an exclusive faith that we believe that Jesus is the only way. If we believe that, how could we sit still? How could we stay satisfied? We must go. And then number four, why do we pray? It embraces our call. When we pray this way, when we pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of, of people, for his kingdom and not ours, it embraces our call. Verse 7, Paul says there that, that, this was, that he was appointed as a, as a preacher and an apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. You and I are not apostles in, in that biblical sense, in that, that uh, we're an apostle like Paul was. But you and I have been called. You may not be called to, to stand in a pulpit and in vocational ministry, but if you are a believer, you're called. The Great Commission calls you to go and make disciples of all nations. It calls every single one of us. You don't need to wait for us to create for you some program. You don't need to, to wait for us to give you one night of the week where it's, it's, it's go time. You don't need any of that. You're free every day, all day, particularly in our context, to share the gospel, to go make disciples, to embrace your call. And when you in your personal prayer life and, in, and when we in our corporate prayer life are praying all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so that his kingdom would be built and not ours, we embrace this mission and we go. So here's the conclusion. Here's what I would leave you with today. Just some questions to provoke some thought. You say, this is where probably, you know, you'll walk out and say, Pastor, that was on my toes. Well, I don't mean to be, but I think the Spirit needs to bring this home to us. When Paul says that we should pray for our political leaders, that means we should pray for our political leaders. And I will admit to you, I struggle here. I am not politically minded. I used to listen to a lot of talk radio, and just to be honest, I got sick of it. I found myself getting negative and bitter all the time, angry. So I've turned it off. But that doesn't excuse me from pray, praying for those that are in high positions above me. What that means is that you and I should know. Here's the question. Do you know the names of the governing officials in order to pray for them? Could you sit down? Will you sit down? Will you, will you learn the names and sit down and begin to pray for President Trump, Vice President Pence, Senators Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, and Representatives Sanford and Wilson and Duncan and Gowdy and Norman and Clyburn and Rice, Supreme Court Justices John Roberts and Clarence Thomas and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer and Samuel Alito and Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh? Will you pray for Governor Henry McMaster? Will you pray for the Spartanburg Mayor, Junie White, and Greenville Mayor, Knox White? 
Will you know their names and begin to work them into the the regular rhythm of, of praying? I don't think Paul here is saying, let's just treat these as just some faceless, nameless entity out there and pray for the government. But that we might look to whoever is the Nero in our world or the David in our world and that we might pray for them by name. Secondly, are you praying for any unbelievers by name? Do you know any unbelievers? Are there individuals that you have written off because you think that they'll never trust Christ? You know, some of you are sitting here today and you realize that, that there are people in your life that wrote you off and, and somehow said that you were beyond the gospel, but yet here you sit. Are there people that you have written off Have you stopped believing that He desires all people to be saved and come to a a knowledge of the truth? That He is sovereign over salvation? Are you praying for unbelievers? And then the third question is, are you praying for God to leverage your living for His kingdom? Are you praying for, for peaceful circumstances in our environment so that you might live godly and dignified in order to point others to Him? To make, uh, to, to, are you cultivating friendships for the purpose of gospel witness? When you make those relationships and as you pray for those, as, you, as God leverages your life, are you taking advantage of those? I would challenge us to pray this way, that we might be a people who pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so that his kingdom might be built and not ours. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity of it. We thank you for the power of it. God, I pray, Lord, that you would take it and use it. God, that you might, you might plant it deep in the hearts and the minds of your people. Lord, that even now, even now, as we prepare to respond, as we sing, Lord, that our, our response might be more than just routine. But God, that you might call us as your people to pray in this way. Lord, that you might call us to see that you've not placed us here just to live the good life, but you've placed us here so that your name might be great among our neighbors and the nations. God, we pray this for your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond on the word of God today and what's been said. Perhaps you've been convicted and maybe there's something that you just want to use this as an opportunity to confess to the Lord, maybe to confess to a brother or sister and to then call them together with you and say, would you pray with me on this? Because I'm, I need help here. I want to turn away from my lack of prayer. I want to pray, turn away from my lack of, of concern for those that are lost. Maybe you want to gather some people and come and kneel and pray. Maybe you're here today and you are lost. You don't know the Lord as your Savior. And I haven't spoken a whole lot about necessarily things with you in mind, but I will tell you that I care enough about you if you're here as an unbeliever, whether you've sat in these for, for years and years and years and never believed, or whether this is your first time in this building, I care enough to tell you that Jesus is the exclusive way to God. But here's what I don't want you to hear. 
is that it's us against everybody else. Would you just strip away all of the animosity toward that for a second and hear that the God of the universe has made a way? He's provided. And perhaps today you have seen your need for Him and you want to come to Him. The extension of grace to you. I would love to help you in that. I'll be seated on the front row. Would you please come and speak to me? Whatever else the Lord is leading you to do as we sing, I just want you to respond in faith. Whatever He calls us to, Lord, just say, Lord, I, I want to do it. Lord, help me to do it and say yes to him. Let's worship as we respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.